0: May the words of my mouth the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. It is a common lot we humans have to judge one another. I know we say we don't, and we know that it's wrong to do so, but it happens. It's involuntary almost. And perhaps by comparison to some of our friends, we don't judge as much as others, but we still do it. We still can't help ourselves. Um, we, we find ourselves driving down the road. We're getting off the freeway. There's a, a man standing at the end of an exit ramp, and he's got a sign that says, Homeless and hungry, you know, please help. And we think to ourselves, I'll bet he's using this money for drugs. No, not none of you, but somebody might have thought that somewhere along the line. Um, You're sitting on a train. You look across. You see a young teenage boy, and he's reading Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiography. And you think to yourself, I'll bet that kid has a troubled life ahead of him, you know, or he's an ornery rascal or, or any sort of things that you might think. Perhaps you're sitting in a dentist's office. A young lady walks in with a dangerously short skirt and a moniker that shouldn't be spoken in church on a Sunday morning comes to mind. And you think, oh, I shouldn't have thought that, but you already have. You see, sometimes it happens. It's an involuntary reflex. We just make a judgment. Wish we hadn't, but we've already done it. Other times, judgments are important. It's important in a world to make judgments, especially a world as dangerous as ours. You ever watch these detective shows, and they're going through the done it sort of thing, and, and at the end you discover who did it, and all the clues were right there all along. And you say to yourself, how did I miss that? I mean, it was so obvious. Like, how did I miss the things that were right in front of my face? Well, you weren't paying close enough attention. That's sort of the message of the detective show, isn't it? If you had been paying closer attention, you would have seen what, what was right in front of your face. A little admission here, a little confession already done and dealt with so i'm not looking for your absolution i already have it but in the days and uh maybe even the years following the uh the events of september the 11th i often found myself in an airport and um as always was my uh happenstance at the airport there was always you know two or three middle eastern men on my flight you ever find that happen on yours you know and um and I kept my eye on these guys. I mean, I didn't look at anybody else, but these two or three fellows. And um, it might have happened that while we were waiting in the gate, I spoke into my cufflink, um, you know, so that they would see me doing that. That's right. You never know. I could be somebody. You walk into a gas station and a man walks in wearing a ski mask in the middle of June, you better pay attention. All right? I mean, something could be up. And you know this. Judgments are using your brain. You make evaluations. You understand. You put the pieces together. You know what's going on. You're driving down the road. You come to a green light, and you're about to turn left. In the oncoming traffic is a 1978 Buick, traveling at about eight and a half miles per hour. And you could think to yourself, you know, there's a pretty good chance that he's not going to speed up as he gets closer to the intersection, and you just go ahead and make your left turn. Because let's face it, The guy driving the light green 78 Buick wearing a plaid tan fedora is not about to hit the gas when he gets to the intersection. He's going to be going that same eight and a half miles an hour all the way through it. But if there's a young guy, you know, 20-something in a fancy red sports car, you better put on your brakes and wait. Make some judgments. Use your brain. Think about these things. We do this all the time. Sometimes we make value judgments, and we shouldn't. Sometimes we make them and we find that we're way off. So I'd urge us to tread lightly when we make those type of judgments. But you have to make judgments. You have to think. It's why you have a brain. You get to use it. and make all kinds of decisions throughout life. But I've noticed that sometimes people do things to intentionally provoke us to make judgments. They, They want us to make judgments. They do things or act in certain ways for precisely the reason, reason that we would judge them. We would make some sort of evaluation. I walked to the library this week with my dog, Lucy. And so Lucy and I walk up to the library to drop off some books that were due. And as I came up, you know, I, I, I couldn't go in the library. They are um, discriminating against all canines and don't like them inside the library. They'll come to their senses someday. But anyway, as Lucy and I were walking up there, we have to walk around to the place where you drive through and drop off your books. You know what I'm saying? And, and I walk through, and there's a car. There's a window before you get to the drop-off slot, and there's a car there waiting on the attendant at the window. And so I kind of have to walk around. And, and as I'm walking around this car, I notice all these Pittsburgh Steeler decals on the back of the car. I spit up a little bit in my mouth. It was hard, you know, and um, and, and and so I walk around and oh, the dealer fans are like, what? And, and anyway, so I, I walk around and I, I drop my books off and um, and Lucy was a little upset too. I could tell, uh, and, and I say to the lady, um, oh, I'm so sorry to see those Pittsburgh decals on your car. She said, why? I said, because it's a cry for help, and uh, and she quickly snapped back. No, that would be a Cleveland Browns bumper sticker that would be a cry for help. And I thought she was right, you know, that there's some truth to that. Um, She cannot live 30 miles from the stadium and put those stickers on her car and not intentionally be trying to provoke me, right? That's right. Thank you. This was an intentional provocation, it wasn't accidental. And that's why people put bumper stickers on their cars sometimes or wear political buttons on their jackets or get tattoos of certain sorts on their arms because they want you to be provoked. They want you to think. They want you to in- say something and to engage them. But you know, sometimes provocation is not intentional. Sometimes provocation is accidental. We still can't help ourselves. We're still provoked. But it's not It's not by intention. And I think that's Luke's point in talking about the early church, that they were a provocative church, that they provoked people around them, not by intention, but just simply by accident. By by living out their lives, they were provocative. In the very uh, uh, beginning of the book, in chapter 2, you get at the end of this a sort of summary of what the church was doing. And I find that they were a, a liturgical community. They were gathered together for worship, Luke says in in chapter 2, verse 42, and the church continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to communion, which is the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were a a, a church that gathered for for preaching, teaching, for for holy communion, and for prayer. This is what they did. This is their kind of gathering. And then he says, and there were many powerful signs that accompanied the church, signs and wonders, Luke says. And there was a great awe that fell upon all people because of what was going on. Indeed, many people were attracted to the church precisely because of these things. There was this, this powerful manifestation of God's presence. And so people were attracted. But you've read the story, you know that not all were attracted. Some were threatened. The religious establishment in Jerusalem was threatened. They didn't like the church. They were, they were concerned about this group. In fact, There were two of the early church leaders, Peter and John. They were called apostles. They're out in the street preaching, and they were arrested for this. While they were arrested, they kind of went through this inquiry. What are you doing? Why are you teaching like this? Why are you saying these things about this man, Jesus? But they had drummed up such goodwill among the community, the surrounding community, that people came and demanded that they be released. They had done great acts of kindness and, and, and miracles of healing. And so people wanted them released. And so the, the officials were sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. They didn't like the doctrine that they were teaching, but the people were so enamored with them that they, they had to you know, make a decision about letting, letting them go. And here's what happens at the end, or about the middle here of chapter 4. After this, um, the, uh, the, the officials said, that, so they called Peter and John in and charged them not to speak any more in the name of Jesus. See, some people were provoked in one way. They were, they were attracted. They were interested. They were, they were drawn towards the church. Others were repulsed by it. But none were left unaffected. The church was provocative. It was, it was forcing them. And I think Luke brings up in this passage several ways in which the church was particularly provocative. The first one was their message. They were preaching about Jesus. Not just about Jesus, about the life, death, And and here's the sticking wicket, right? And the the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is the problem. This is what got them arrested. You know, nobody was arrested for healing a a man who was crippled. Nobody was arrested for, for, you know, healing blind people or for giving out uh, money to needy people. They were arrested because they were preaching about Jesus and about the resurrection of Jesus. And so they were told, stop it. You will be severely punished if you don't. And you know what happened? They didn't stop. <laughs> they said, you know, punish us if you will. But we cannot. This is the reason why we exist to proclaim this message. Right in our lesson today. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This message is a provocative message. People hear it and they respond in different ways. Some say, oh, that's nonsense. That's nonsense. It's a fairy tale. Oh, it's myth. It's legend. Others say, can that be true? Is it possible? Others say, I believe. But nobody's left unaffected by that message. Another way that the church was provocative was in its unity. Now, the full number of those who believed, listen to this, Luke says, were of one heart and soul. And great grace was upon them all. They were of one heart and soul. Cardiah where we get cardio, uh, you know, uh, cardiology or um, cardiologists, you know, of one heart. And suke. where we get psychology, not just soul. They were of one heart and mind. Doesn't mean they all thought alike. I'll bet there were some of the other political party, you know what I mean? There were probably some who, who kind of viewed certain areas differently. There were Chevy guys and Ford guys. Those were camel types back in the old days. You know, they were, they were all sorts of people who, who had different opinions about many different subject matters. But they were of one heart and mind when it came to the essentials of the Christian faith. They were emotionally connected at core beliefs. They loved one another. They cared for one another. And this was provocative. People looked at them and said, "My, Look how they, how they get along. Look how they they care for one another, and this leads to the third and I think the most um, egregiously provocative is that the right word <laughs> to, the, to the most provocative part of, of the church's life together. and that was their generosity. I'll bet if you paid close attention to the reading, it probably would have struck you as a little bit a little too close to home. Let me read it again. In case you weren't provoked enough the first time, here's a second go at it. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands and houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the apostles who distributed it to any as had need. They took their homes and their properties and they sold it and they took all the money and they gave it to the apostles and said, give it to anyone who has need. That's a little scary, isn't it? I mean, come on, I'm glad that he's talking about them and not us because, you know, that could really hit close to home, couldn't it? You see, I don't think that Luke is actually giving some sort of ideal of, uh, of a Christian economy. I don't think that's what he's saying as he's writing this. If you flip over to the next chapter, chapter 5, read the story about Ananias and Sapphira, it's clear that it was okay to own personal property. Nothing, nothing uh, invalid about that. The point is that people didn't have to give their property up, but they willingly did it anyway. They gave out of generosity's sake, out of charity's sake, out of love, not because they were forced to do it. That was what was so provocative about the life of the early church. Why are they doing this? Why are they caring for one another like this? Why do they love one another this way? I don't think the book of Acts offers a prescriptive way to live. I think Luke is giving us a descriptive analysis of what happened in the early church. He's looking at the early church and saying, this is what happened. And we are going, wow. And why is that so? Why is it like that? Why did this this band of ragtag, undereducated, uneducated, impoverished group of men and women who were part of an illegal religion, how did they change the world like they did? What was it about them that so radicalized the way that people saw them? Was it that they were more clever than everyone else? They had really smart people. Was it that they had really, you know, fantastic programs? You know, oh, you should see the way they, they, you know, they, they get this new children's wing. You know, no, it was none of that. They had no stuff. They had no money. They had, they had no leaders. They, they were, they were, the lowest form. And yet, their, their lack of resources did not stop them from being the most provocative people in the world. What was it? What was it that made the church so powerful? Two things. One, they believed in the message of the resurrection. They believed it with all their heart and being. It wasn't an intellectual exercise for them. They believed it. They bought into it. They believed that the resurrection was true. And the second thing, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit worked through them and transformed them, made them into different kinds of human beings. That's the work of the Spirit, to make us more and more like Jesus. The thing that the church needs most. The thing that we have to have. And I think if if Luke was giving us a prescription for anything, it would be this. Hold on to the faith. Hold on to the gospel. And depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit. This past Thursday, um, on April the 9th, marked 70 years um, from the uh, the date of the execution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany, April the 9th, 1945. He was executed just two weeks to the day before the 90th and 97th Infantry of the United States Army liberated Flossenburg Prison, where he was being held captive. Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor, a theologian, was involved in... Um, in an underground seminary, an illegal seminary, he was teaching uh, young men to be pastors in those days, and and he was um he was working against every philosophical tenet of the Third Reich. He was he was a um, complicit in a uh, in a plot to overthrow the Nazi government. And he was arrested and held in prison for two years on suspicion of these charges, though the, 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 the um, evidence that, uh, really against him wasn't forthcoming till just before his death. But on April the 9th, like I said, just two weeks before, he was, um, he was found guilty and on orders of Adolf Hitler himself was executed. He was taken from a cell, he was stripped naked in the hallway, and he was led down the hall to the courtyard where he and several others were hanged. There was a physician right across the hall from him who wrote in a, in a, a, a memoir later, who, the, the physician survived, and here's what he said. He said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, this is on the day, the morning of his execution, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, Then he climbed a few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Wow. It's been reported that Bonhoeffer was walking down the hall, and he looked to the guard, and he said, Today is the end. But for me, it is the beginning of life. Last words on earth today is the end, but for me, it is the beginning of life. And then you have this other party, this witness, who says he walks up there brave and confident. What in the world could make a man go to his death with such confidence, with such certainty, and dare I say, with such joy? What indeed?